So welcome to another summer drop-in session here on Dead Men Talk, and I'm thrilled to be able to welcome a multi-talented guest today, Chuck Chapman. How are you, sir? Oh, great, man. How are you, Chris? Not too bad. Not too bad. So with yourself, uh, we we got talking initially because you've written a marvellous book, which we'll talk about. Um, but also, I'd love to quote this from your website, actually, because you don't you don't just write. You don't just write. I love this, that you sum yourself up. Singer, songwriter, actor, artist, writer, poet, dreamer. Love that. So that pretty much sums it up. Pretty well. <laughs> so um, before we delve into your book uh, too much, just uh, so give us a flavor of the other things that you have done up to this point. Um, I played in touring rock bands for uh, close to 25 years, 25, 30 years. Um, the most successful was a band called the Delilahs back in the 90s. Um, we toured with Peter Frampton, um, Blue Oyster Cult, Molly Hatchet, um, the Hooters, um, before it was a restaurant, when it was a band. Um, I can't remember everybody. Danger Danger, um, Steve Morse. That's, That's an impressive list already. <laughs> That's one I remember right off the hand. It's, it's been 20 years or 15, 20 years. So wow. Remember those right off hand when I wasn't prepared for that? It's pretty close, I guess. <laughs> and then I do independent films, um, independent B, B horror movies, maybe even C or D horror movies. Fantastic. Um, we have like virtually no budget. So we do the best we can. Our um, last film was called He Drives at Night. Well, actually, that wasn't our last. Well, yeah, that was our last film. Um, we've done a documentary since then um, from the Lizzie Borden house and oh, it's wow. free to watch on YouTube. So just cool. go to the Foam, F-O-A-M productions page on YouTube. And we've got a short film up there that's free to watch. And we've got the Lizzie Borden documentary, which has gotten very good reviews right. that is free to watch. And then we've got um, previews, um, trailers, for the other films cool. and so he drives at night was the last full length film and it had butch patrick who was eddie monster on the monsters wow so he he was co-starring in it and did a great job of course and was a big help um and that film got nominated for a rondo award which is kind of you know like the horror version of the um Gram or grammys or wow. um, oscars cool so, and we actually got an honorable mention didn't win but we got an honorable mention <laughs> So for a film that was made on $2,500 budget, I that's think that's pretty good. And we yeah. picked up a distributor, so hopefully it'll be out soon on all the um, streaming services and yeah. Amazon and everywhere else they can get it, I hope. So Brilliant. it's done fairly well. It won a few film festivals and stuff. Cool. Um, let's see. Yeah, did I cover everything? Oh, and I've been in a few... A few other movies the, and TV shows, the biggest of which was I had um, a feature role in Personal Injury Court, which is one of those court TV shows. I yeah. played the defendant in one of those, um, and it was nationally syndicated, so that was pretty cool. Brilliant. Um, I, was, I noticed you, you shared that on Facebook. I did look for that to see if I could find that myself over here, because I think it's probably just played in America. Yeah, probably. There, there's a trailer. Um, there is a trailer. I'll try to find the trailer. Of course, it, they've got a bunch of their episodes up on YouTube, but they don't have that one. Uh, so, but there is a promo for it. So, cool. And then I did some background work in um, the last Clint Eastwood movie, um, Richard Jewell. 
and then I did background work in, um, I got to remember all this stuff now. Fogged <laughs> up from the COVID junk. So um, actually Spider-Man Homecoming. I got to work three feet from Michael Keaton all day. So it was like a free acting lesson all wow. day. Amazing. And you see the back of my head in the movie. So cool. I made it, but the back of my head made it. I got the most famous back of the head in Hollywood. So. I'm going to have to rewatch that <laughs> to see if I can recognize it. So that, that, you know, that's, um, that's just the stuff before the book that we're about to talk about. So it sounds like you've, you've got enough to fill a series of your own sort of, you know, um, so then you, um, you have written a book called, I'll let you introduce it. Okay. It's called family man. The unreal story of Charles Manson's right hand man. Yeah. So this had me hooked just from the title because even though I mean obviously as a um you don't have to be a horror fan, I suppose, to know about the Manson murders and everything, but there's been a lot of reference to them or homage paid to them in a lot of right. films along the way. So I knew of them. Um haven't really delved into the history of it. So I was very intrigued when you you mentioned that you'd written this book in particular because it's it's like it's it's an alternate take on it which after i not i'm not, I'm not going to give anything away you can obviously divulge whatever you want on there but we can't give the big stuff away no but um but it's 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 such a believable even though someone who doesn't know the full history of it, it's it's such a believable account of it it's almost eerie when you get to the end of it and because you are left thinking you know how close is this to what could have happened probably did happen. Um, um, so yeah. just so I'll, I'll even introduce the introduce the book and then really sort of how you started or how you even start to research something like this in as much detail as you did. Right. I've been interested in the Manson case since I was, I don't know, way too young to have watched or read the books. But when Helter Skelter came on television, I was probably six or seven years old. And my parents let me watch it. <laughs> and it scared the crap out of me. But it was just so intriguing, and I think why it scared me, because um, I've always loved horror movies. I mean, even from an early age, and most of the time, none of them really affected me. I mean, Halloween came out in 78. I was like eight or nine years old, mm. and I thought it was great. It's my favorite movie ever, mm. um, but it didn't scare me. I just thought it was a great movie, yeah. um, whereas Helter Skelter scared the crap out of me because it was real, Yeah, you know, or at least at that time, the killings were real. Yeah. Um, you know, same thing with the Amityville Horror. Now, over the years, you know, some of that has come out. Some of it's real. Maybe some of it's yeah. not, whatever. But at the time, you know, you're presented. These are real, true stories. And so the truth to me is always scarier than anything that we can imagine. Absolutely. I mean, the things that happen in real life are always worse and scarier than the things we see on the screen or read in a book to me. Yeah. Um, so I think that's what really got to me. So Helter Skelter, I just had this fascination with... When I saw the TV movie, I then read the book, I think, two or three times in a row or within a year. And, you know, I believe that story because why not? You know, this was the prosecutor. Surely if anybody knew the story, it was him. Yep. But then I revisited the book probably 20 years later. And I started thinking a lot of this doesn't make any sense. You know, a lot of this just doesn't come together right. Yeah. You know, and so it milled around in my head for a while. And then a few years later, I started just really digging into it and reading some alternate versions, alternate takes, all of which were supposed to be 
either documentary or um, the true versions or documented stuff. Yeah. But most of them were just rewrites of Helter Skelter. Right. You know, so I started really researching. I spent eight years researching this case, really not even knowing what I was going to do with it, right. just from my personal knowledge, because I'm like, it doesn't sound right to me. And so when I started digging in, digging in, the further I dug, the more I'm like, this is, yeah, there's, there's something else going on here. And so about two years ago, I'm like, I think I want to write about this, you know, and tell people the stuff that I've, that I've learned. And there's other stuff out there. Um, Nicholas Shrek, if anybody's familiar with him, um, he was a big help. He, we kind of Facebook back and forth. And so he gave me some stuff. Of course, I've listened to all his podcasts, all his versions, all his stories, um, some other people that are close to the case and just started really going, okay, let me tell what I think happened and not just what I think happened, but what I feel like I learned happened through not only these books, but also, um, all the interviews with Manson. I think that's a lot of what hooked me is the old Geraldo and Tom Snyder interviews and stuff with Manson. At first you think, ha ha, this guy's a nut. But the more you learn about Manson, the guy, not that he wasn't a nut in some ways. Mm. I do think, especially later in life, he had some issues. But if you're spending, you know, he grew up in um, juvenile camps, you know, grew up in prison, basically. I think he had spent 22 years of his life in boys' homes, juvenile detention centers, or prisons even before this started. You know, so I mean, the guy had nothing to reference except prison life you know, institutional living. So when he got turned loose in San Francisco in the summer of love, you know, good Lord, the things he's been dreaming about in prison for 10 years, whatever, boom, there they are. All the troubles you want, all the drugs you want, free food, free places to stay, you know. He's already in a pretty, maybe warped, not warped by some, you know, by some people's descriptions, but he's had a very... um, subjective way of life you know he's 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 only familiar with what he knows right which is very different than your average especially young you know teenage 18 20 21 22 year olds Mm. which is who gathered around him who became his friends who became what came referred to as the family Mm. whereas i think i can say i mean i make it clear in the book but there wasn't a the family that was created by the media and by the prosecutor to make everything sound sinister and sound like there was a big cult and stuff. They consider themselves a family because they all live together. They all work together. They did everything together. They cared for each other. That's what a family is. Mm -hmm. But never while they were together, they call themselves the family as in a specific cult name or group name. It's amazing what the media can do with something like that. It is. I mean, that case is probably one of the first cases of just the media going wild. Yeah. Whereas today, basically every case is a case. (laughs) But back then, you know, the media had some integrity and they usually tried to get to the truth or at least their version of the truth. And so through this, I've listened to hours and hours of people who were friends with Manson shared their tapes with me that they had made private telephone conversation tapes. So I got a lot of my information came straight from Charles Manson himself through those tapes. And I put it into a context of this character 
my main character is fictional. So it's the story of Billy Shepard, who in its own way is a 60s reference. Yeah. Um, if anybody's familiar with the Paul is Dead Beatles story, which I'm sure you are. I'm not actually, to be fair. You're not. Okay, no. you know, there was a rumor in the 60s, which some people still believe, a conspiracy theory that Paul McCartney was killed in an automobile crash and okay. replaced, replaced by a more talented look-alike. You can look those up. There's some great... I'm right now. That's fascinating. I don't necessarily believe it, but there's some very compelling videos out there that make you go, hmm, you know? Okay. So, um, but supposedly the guy that replaced him, there's a couple of names out there, but one of the names of the new Paul McCartney, quote unquote, was Billy Shepard. Uh -huh, okay. That's where I pulled the name from because, you know, there's so much Beatles, so much 60s music tied into the story of the mm -hmm. Manson situation mix and family. I'll use family just as the term because everybody's familiar with it, that I thought that it was imperative to use some Beatles references. There's, um, there's some really cool hidden Beatles references in there, I think, <laughs> if you look for them. Since you're right. looking for, they were talking about hidden references in Beatles music. So I threw a few yeah. hidden Beatles references That's throughout cool. the book. That's so cool. I love stuff like that. Look for them. And we can talk about it after it goes off. I don't want to give it away because I want to make it fun for people <laughs> who are looking for those. Because there's at least three or four, yeah. including Billy, Billy Shepard. So That's give you cool. that one. Because for anybody that's familiar with the Paul is dead theory, that one's pretty easy. That's cool. No, I'm definitely going to look more into that. I can't believe I didn't know that, actually. Something that's bypassed me, must admit. <laughs> but um, you, you, you said that initially you... You you felt that the, the, there's something about the original case that wasn't right. What specifically, or was there anything specific that didn't sit right with you that kind of started this whole thing off? Well, the big part about the mindless robots being sent out to kill, um, you know, I don't see any way possible that you can tell, you know, four or five different people, hey, go kill everybody at this house and they're just going to mindlessly do it. You know, they have at that time, he didn't go with them. You know, there's, in, in fact, they, they admit in the trial, he wasn't at any of the killings. No. Yet somehow they convicted him of murder. Um, you know, the fact that they wouldn't let him testify in front of a jury because they thought that he could hypnotize the jury with his eyes and mind control the jury. Right. I mean, this is in Helter Skelter. This is part of the original record. Yeah. The official record, man, you know, and I'm like, what? You know, that should have been a mistrial right there. Yeah. You know, not to mention the fact that you have the president of the United States, you know, Richard Nixon declaring he's guilty in the middle of the trial. <laughs> you know, yeah. And, you know, him holding up a paper saying so, <laughs> you know, they got snuck a paper in somehow. And here he is showing that, you know, the president says we're even, the, you know, the girls came in. The president says we're guilty. We must be guilty, you know. It's, and it's you know, following him and stuff, you know, I think they looked up to him because he was 33 years old at the time. Yeah. Most of them are late teens, early twenties. Yeah. I think they looked up to him and followed him because he had worldly knowledge. Yeah. And he was, you know, you're naturally going to gravitate to, if you're in a group, you're almost always going to gravitate to the older person is going to yeah. be the de facto leader. Yeah. And that's what I think he was. I don't think he was a cult leader. I don't think they were worshiping him or thought he was Jesus Christ or any of that stuff. You know, I think he bought into some of that later just because Charlie liked attention. Mm. You know, he liked the publicity of being on these interviews 
and who's going to interview you if you're not entertaining? Yeah. You know, he'd sit there and no, I didn't do it. You know, <laughs> nobody cares. But when he's like, I'm to the left and I'm to the right, man, and I'm over here and I'm over there and I'm in your face, man. You know, that's just so much more entertaining than, no, I didn't do it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think he realized that and he's like, hey, I can get out of solitary confinement for a while and entertain. Charlie was an entertainer. Mm. You know, he was a musician. Um, the Beach Boys thought very highly of him. And, you know, um, you've read the book. Yeah. You know, Beach Boys figure very big into this whole situation. Yeah. I, most people think I didn't know until probably only about sort of six months ago, even a few year ago that he, he was even a musician. Um, I don't know where I read it now, but I, I then looked his stuff up on Spotify and, um, I only listened to a few. I mean, it's good stuff. It, it was just, it was, it was odd knowing that had come from him, you know, and, and what I mean, they, you know, Dennis Wilson called him the wizard. Yeah. I mean, he was just fascinated with him. Neil Young endorsed him. Neil Young thought he would be, you know, Brian Wilson thought he would be the next big thing. Yeah. You know, if anybody doubts any of those guys' talent and opinions, you know, hey, <laughs> you know, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> they thought he was great. Who are we to say he wasn't? You know, a lot of people try to put what he was doing then in the context of now. Yeah. You know, yeah, what he was doing in the late 60s, you know, sounded dated, mm. but it sounded very protesty music. You know, it sounded like Crosby, Stills, and Nash to me. It sounded like Bob Dylan to me. How much How much of that stuff is still relevant and still, you know, um, revered today? Yeah, you know, not it's still a lot famous of stuff. But, yeah. um, they're revered for what they accomplished. Yeah. They're not selling records now. No, no. You know, that doesn't make them any less musicians. In fact, it probably makes them better because to me, the people who are selling records now <laughs> Quite. Play an that's 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 a whole different rabbit hole we could go down it there, really is think, let's so. not go there <laughs> <laughs> so what well, well, i mean just just uh, just off the top of my head really what do you think um had that not happened you know where do you think charles manson would have been sort of today I think there was or... a good chance that melcher would have pushed him um i don't know how far he would have gone i'm not sure if you've ever heard any of terry melcher's music i'm uh, not familiar with it no um, terry melcher was Doris Day's son. You know, he was a big Hollywood, or not Hollywood, he was a big music producer at the time. Right. Um, and that's who they were trying to get to record him. Okay. He recorded um, The Birds. Okay. He recorded um, their biggest hits. Um, he recorded Paul Revere and the Raiders' biggest hits. So he was, he was a big deal back then. Yeah. And so he's the one that lived at CLO before Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of the claims are that he went there to kill them because he was pissed off at Terry Melcher. That's not true. It's been multiple times proven that he and Terry Melcher had a relationship after Melcher had left CLO. Right. He knew CLO. He knew that Melcher wasn't at CLO. He knew exactly where Melcher was. He had been to Melcher's house. Melcher had been to the ranch. Yeah. They had plenty of opportunities to kill Melcher or put fear into Melcher if they wanted to. So that's, I don't even know where that story comes from. It's just something that, you know, people buy into the Helter Skelter myth. And they're really, in the sense that Bugliosi, eh, sorry, Silent G, which he was well to point out, yeah. Bugliosi um, used it. There really is no Helter Skelter. No. You know, Helter Skelter was a thought. It was, he did think, Charlie did think that there would be a black-white race war. It got named Helter Skelter after the Beatles songs. 
it wasn't even named that by Charlie. It was named that by some of the girls. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, it wasn't a really big thing to him. Bugliosi himself admits that he doesn't think Charlie really believed it. No. So if he doesn't really believe it, then why would he send people out to start it? Very true. You know, so all mm. that just stuff, even stuff in the book contradicts itself. Yeah. You know, Linda Kasabian, who became the star witness, who was there at both killings, at CLO and at Waverly the next night, Linda Kasabian says, like two paragraphs away from each other, you know, she was afraid. They asked, why did you not leave as soon as they killed the people at CLO? Well, I was afraid they would harm my daughter, who was at the ranch. Well, she left a few days after the second killing and left her daughter at the ranch. And said, well, why did you leave her at the ranch? Oh, well, I knew she would be okay. Right. Yeah. Well, there's a contradiction right there in the same book, just right. a few paragraphs apart. It does discredit it somewhat. Yeah. You know, and it's like that all the way through. There's yeah. tons of places where it will say one thing, and then it'll come back and say something totally opposite just a few chapters or a few, even sometimes a few paragraphs later. Yeah. So, you know, you start seeing that and then you start listening to the Manson interviews and you start listening to what other people have to say and you start putting it together. I got crime scene photos. I got autopsy reports. I got um, police, the original copies of the police, the original police reports. Mm -hmm and the updated police reports. So I went a lot on what the police were pursuing before this Helter Skelter stuff came into it at the trial. Right. And what the police were pursuing had nothing to do with Helter Skelter or cults or anything like that. And that's what we talk about in the book. Yeah. You know, Billy tells, he's Charlie's best friend. He's Charlie's right-hand man, which Charlie really didn't have. Everybody assumed different people were Charlie's right-hand man. Mm -hmm. And Charlie would tell anybody anything they wanted to hear. And this was his whole life, you know, because that's how you got by. That's how you survived in jail. Yeah. You know, you told people what they wanted to hear. Yeah. So if Tex comes up and goes, hey, Charlie, are you my, you know, am I, am I your best friend? Yeah, man, you're my best friend. Well, if Paul Watkins comes up and says, hey, Charlie, I'm your best friend, right? Charlie's, yeah, Paul, you're my best friend. <laughs> you're my man. You know, so all of them thought they were Charlie's right-hand man. But he really didn't trust any of them. No. Charlie didn't trust anybody. So I make Billy, who gets nicknamed Shep because everybody in the family had a nickname. Hmm. Um, I made Billy the right-hand man that all the other people thought they were and that I think Charlie really wanted, yeah. but never really had. So I use a lot of conversation between Charlie and Billy or Charlie and Shep. I need to just call him Shep because that's what I call him through 90% of the book. Um, so I'll use a lot of conversation between Charlie and Shep to explain Charlie's real feelings and Charlie's thoughts on things. And as often as possible, now obviously those conversations never happened, mm. but through pieces of conversations with other people that I've heard Charlie have, a ton of the Charlie quotes in that book are actually his exact words. I find so, that quite cool. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of Charlie, you no, know, not everything. Some of it, you know, I mean, like when he and Shep meet, obviously I had to make up that whole scenario. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but I tried to use terms that I thought Charlie would use through listening to probably between interviews, um, phone conversations, um, documentaries and stuff, watching his mannerisms, listening to his speech patterns. I tried to say what I thought Charlie would say in those situations. But I would say probably at least of you know, probably 60 to 70% of 
of Charlie's speech in my book are actual quotes of Manson himself. I, I personally, it's that level of research and perception on your part that makes this book so credible. Because, and it's, knowing that a lot of it in there is based on reality and you're kind of trying to figure out which the fictional parts are because so much of it seems so real. Um, did you have, going back to Shep as a character, did you have someone in particular in mind that inspired him or is he an amalgamation of multiple yeah. people? Shep was a combination of four or five of the guys there that were fairly close to Charlie. Mm. Um, and some of him was just, I tried to give him his own personality, yeah. which I probably patterned after myself um, in a lot of ways. Mm. So I tried to give him the independent thoughts and stuff that he had of course i didn't know what those guys thoughts were so that probably came from me but some of it came from tex watson some of it came from paul watkins some of it came from tj wallerman some of it came from bobby Boussoulet. um so kind of all those guys combined plus my personality in there with cool. with him is what created shit cool and i think as far as what's what's fictional what's truth basically the story itself is truth, in my opinion, and through my research. The way I describe the murders, the way I describe what leads up to the murders, the way I describe what happens after the murders are all, like I said, through my research and through my opinion, are all fact. The only thing that's really fictional is the ship timeline, the ship participation in those things. So that's why I consider it historical fiction. Um, some of the things I had that I chose to use, I could not corroborate. I had from one source, but I couldn't corroborate. Mm. To me, if they made sense, if they fit the story, I used them anyway. Yeah, um, I tried to corroborate as much as I could, but again, this is not a nonfiction account. This yeah. is not a news story. So everything wasn't corroborated, but everything that happened that was related to Manson or the family, to me, is truth. Yeah. The only things really fictional are ships, parts in it. And you obviously needed that as a vessel to kind of tell the story, so that makes perfect sense. You know, to, it, was, um, it had never been done that I'm aware of, and that most of the people I talked to was aware of, it had never been done in sort of a novelization. Uh, Everything had been more documentation. And so to me, if you don't know anything about Manson, this is still an enjoyable story. Mm. If you think you know everything about Manson, this is probably going to shake your world up a little bit, but I think it's still going to be an enjoyable story. Um, my wife, who couldn't care less about Manson, cried at the end because she cared so much about Shep. Yeah. And that's powerful, and that's what you want as a writer. That's when you know, really, that you've, you've done your job. You know, as a horror writer, I suppose, when I get people, not that many of them, but when I do get people sort of comment on the if they felt fear or something or they've had to read one of the stories with the light on or something perfect you know that's exactly what i'm after so my that was that actually goes on quite nicely to what i i was going to use as my sort of main question is your vision for this book um what would you like to achieve with it would you like it to be accepted as a a, a sort of a standalone work of fiction or do you really want to try and change people's opinions or awareness of of what you think actually happens Honestly, both, I would say, um, I, or at least even if I don't change their opinions, I want them to look into it for themselves. Yeah. You know, 
I want them to say, okay, you know, let's see if I can find documentation for this. And a lot of it, they're going to be able to, you know, a lot of it's out there, but yeah, that was the main thing is that I, I wanted to do something that hadn't been done yeah. with the story, present it in a whole new way. Um, but like I said, there's people out there who have told similar stories. Um, most of my ideas aren't new. I mean, everything out there I've documented, hmm. you know, I wanted to tell the true story. So I had to find stuff or people that could tell me these things. Yeah whether it be websites, interviews. I interviewed a lot of people. A lot of people helped me out a lot. They were very willing to talk to me. Some wouldn't talk to me. Um, one of the main characters in the book, I tried to contact and they would not get back with me. So I kind of had to portray them the way other people told me they were. Um, you know, if they have a beef with it, I did try to get in touch. Yep. <laughs> Feel free. They'll probably get in touch now when they got a problem with it. Right. I tried to get it straight from you. So you wouldn't tell me your version. So I had to get people that said they knew you or knew what happened. There you go. Um, so, you know, and Manson was very, for the most part, Manson's very honest. Mm. Um, a lot of people think he's just a raving lunatic and stuff, but a lot of the things he would do in his interviews when he did the hand signals and stuff, he was sending signals to people he knew. Right. Um, you know, they would, he would get letters in prison or whatever. And I'll put that reference in there. You know, I don't think that's giving anything away that Shep writes him a letter when he's in prison. Right. And of course, Shep's at this point, not anywhere near California and Charlie can't respond, but Charlie responds with a hand signal that he and Shep use together. Yeah. So Shep knows that Charlie got his correspondence yeah. and he really did that with, you know, several people. He would send them, you know, messages when he's doing all this, you know, crazy stuff that people think, oh, he's just doing crazy stuff. He's sending messages to people, you know, whether it be, hey, write me a letter, send me some money. Yeah. You know, I got your letter, whatever. He's communicating with people. It's when you learn stuff like that, you realize how smart he was. You know, like you say, people jump on the bandwagon and think he's just a madman. But you well, yeah. know, if everything he was doing actually had a purpose. That's very intelligent. Yeah, but the main thing I want to get across to people is that I feel like Charlie was kind of used as a scapegoat. I was that was that was I was going to ask you that earlier on is yeah, do you think it was just a bit of a sort of blame culture? You know, we need to pin this on right. someone. Well, and someone who looked evil. Yeah. You know, someone who you know they use that famous picture of him when he's all bugged out, his eyes are bugged out and stuff. What yeah. they don't realize is he was just coming off an LSD trip. Mm. You know, when they take that picture, so he's all crazy, and that's the picture everybody goes by. Yeah. You know, there's, there's tons more pictures out there where he doesn't, you know, he looks like a normal guy. Mm. The actual, you know, finishing, you know, just before we tie it up, just, just sort of the actual writing of the book. You mentioned it took you about like eight years or, or so of research. Well, it took me eight years research. How, how long then, when you decided you were going to put it together as a book, how, how long did that process take? Um, about eight months. Okay. That's... Yeah, eight or nine months. Yeah. That's uh, still a chunk of time, and when you, when you consider, like, yeah, nearly nine years devoted, you know, from start to finish, really, with this, that's, uh, right. that's and that's what again, I I keep raving about it. It's one of the best books I've read for oh, a wow. long time. It's it was um, I I love, you know, finding new writers. That's what I love about the writing community. You you get to discover people for yourself who otherwise you probably wouldn't have found out about, and you find that their work is incredible 
and you just want to talk about it. So it's great to have you on here to talk about it. I uh, I implore all the, the listeners to hunt this book out. When is it due out? As of right now, we're tentatively for September. Cool. So it'll be coming soon. All the final edits are done. Right now, I'm waiting on them to send me the cover for final approval. Cool. And after that, I think we're done. All our Library of Congress stuff's taken care of, our ISBN numbers. So we're really, really close. Brilliant. So the target's September right now. Cool. Um, you can find it on Facebook at Family Man Book, just at Family Man Book. You should be able to find it. Or Family Man, the unreal story of Charles Manson's right-hand man. Cool. Um, and then it'll be available everywhere when it comes out. It's on Black Bedsheet Books. So you can find it on blackbedsheetbooks.com. You can find it on my website, chuckwchapman.com. Um, you'll be able to find it on the phone productions page. Um, obviously, it'll be Amazon. I'm, I'm, I, I'm predicting at some point it'll be everywhere. I think it'll be one of the books. Once it gets out there and people start reading it, it'll, it'll be a real uh, talking point. So, uh, well, I hope so. And thank you yeah. for the compliment, Chris. That means so much. No, no problem. Yeah, thank you for letting me, re- you know, let me read it ahead of time. I, I think I, I feel very privileged yeah, to you're uh, one of the three people that I sent advance copy. Yeah, there you go. I feel special. I feel special. Right. No, I really appreciate it. It's, um, I can't wait to see it out there. I mean, you know, you don't. The book cover. People always say you don't judge a book by its cover, but I, I can't wait to see what the finished product looks like because I think. Oh, you can. <laughs> I sent in what I wanted it to look like, but yeah, yeah. what it's going to come out looking like. So you know, the publisher makes that final decision. They do. I, I know. Really appreciate that because I enjoy your work. Thank I mean, you. I do so that you know coming from somebody you respect and you enjoy their work and it does mean a lot thank you oh yeah um um in terms of sort of have you got any like promote i oh, know it's probably difficult at the minute any promotional activities uh lined up or any any um particular vessels you're going to use to really sort of push the book when it's out that um, you know of well obviously my facebook page um for the book um i'm sure the publisher will do some stuff he hasn't told me what yet I'll be doing book signings at least around the southeastern United States. Cool. Um, obviously, COVID's kind of restricting things right now. Yeah. So, not sure how many of those I'll be able to do. Um, I will be making signed copies available again. I don't know what international shipping would be. Um, in the U.S., it'll be twenty-five bucks, and that's for the signed copy, postpaid, and everything. Um, cool. The Amazon retail is going to be fourteen ninety-eight. Cool. So your bookstore retail should be fourteen ninety eight. Like I said, if you want a signed copy, probably somewhere maybe twenty bucks plus shipping. Whatever shipping is international, I haven't checked. Bargain. I would say bargain. That's uh yeah, no, all all the best I can't wait for the uh, the world to return to rights. You know, I, I had got some I'm just getting started with one of my books and actually being able to make public appearances and public readings and then this comes along and wrecks it all so uh, horror it, cons i love doing horror cons uh, okay cool and so that was really one of my major you know I want to do the horror cons yeah yeah because you know i do them to promote the movies and stuff yeah so we always have tables at horror cons and right now there are no horror cons no online online is not going to sell me a lot of books <laughs> That's the thing. It just seems to be. I know they've got to take precautions and everything. It just seems to be that the uh, the entertainment and the arts industries are bottom of the list. And you know, there's there's a lot of people out there that that need to get back out there. And you exactly. know, yeah. You know, if it's not hurting Kiss and Metallica, it's hurting guys like us. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, we, we guys, we guys, the way you say it, us guys, whatever. Yeah. That would, you know, need to be out in public so people can meet us, can see our book, can yeah. shake our hand, you know, when we can shake hands again. That yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah. You know, we, we need that contact. Yeah. To help us get our product out and it's killing us, you know, small bands. Yeah. Bands, small businesses, the, yeah. the independent authors. You name it. All of us guys at the bottom, and it's it's hurting us bad. It is. <laughs> those guys that make millions, they're just cruising in their mansion. Like, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure, they're That's, not really hurting bad. <laughs> not really, not really. But uh, yeah, fingers crossed. Next year, it's all meant to get better. Apparently, we'll see. Everyone does their part. Hopefully, we will. It should be when it's released. It should be available everywhere. Cool. You know, even your local bookstore should be able to get it because they should have it in their listings and yeah. stuff. They may not have it on their shelves, but they should be able to get it for you. Like yeah. I said, through Amazon. You know, yeah. cool. Amazon or Black Bed Sheets is going to be your straight unless you want it. If it comes through me, then that's why it costs a little more because I personally have to sign the book and I'll sign it however anybody wants. That's then, cool. <laughs> that's, yeah. I mean, no swap tickets or anything. <laughs> you'll, you'll, yeah, you'll get some. I'm, I'm re I reckon you'll, you'll get some interesting requests, I'm sure. I'm sure. But yeah, I'll sign it however anybody wants to. And you know, just the fact that I have to get them to ship the books to me. Yeah. Then I pull them out, I sign them, I repackage them, I ship them out. You know, I'm not I'm not really I'm getting ten bucks for that and the shipping's probably five or six of it. Yeah. You know, so, uh, you're gonna have a you're gonna have a happy customer at the end of it and that's And that's, that's what we're you know, and I'll have them on eBay, same thing. Cool. You know, the signed version. So there's there'll be plenty of outlets there. There we go. So yes, listeners, anyone listening to this, family man, uh, look it up. Go on Chuck's pages. Uh, when the book's out, buy a copy. You will not regret it. It's it's a brilliant, brilliant piece of work. So uh, thank you so much for coming on. This has been amazing being able to talk to you finally. So, yeah, uh, thank you so much for it. No worries. I really appreciate it, man. Really. No, worries. no worries. Well, all the best with everything, you know, and uh, keep in touch. Hopefully have you back on one day, you know, and... Okay. Uh, you know, when it when it's out and catch up again and sort of see what see what else lies ahead for you. That sounds great, man. Cool. Thank you, bud. All right. Thank you. See you again. Cheers, mate.